Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Interesting uh, study was done, very interesting study done at uh, UBC, University of British Columbia, or at least it was co-authored at the University of British Columbia. And uh, the fundamentals are that if you want to help stop climate change, and there's still a lot of people who question the issue of climate change, me being one of them, um, but that doesn't stop me from looking interesting at interesting stories and studies. Seth Wines is a PhD candidate at UBC, and uh, if you're serious about getting involved in putting an end to climate change, one thing you can do is have one less child. Seth, thank you for taking the time. Great to be on the show with you. Would you, uh, would you tell me how, how this began? What was the genesis? What was the idea behind the study? Yeah, sure. I, um, I was a high school science teacher before I went into grad school. And so I've talked with a lot of students about climate change. And a lot of teenagers are worried about the planet that they're inheriting and wanted to know, you know, what are the most important things that I can do? Um, what can I do for this problem? And so I didn't have all the answers at the time. I had um, sort of a, a list of general environmental actions to take, but I didn't know which ones were best. And it was something that I wanted to look into for myself and to give better answers. So how did you get to the point where you started to realize that one of the significant contributors to climate, uh, what do we call it? Um, not, not the word mess isn't a good word, but the, the negative climate developments that climate change suggests is going on. What was the road sign that led you to looking at the numbers of kids that people have? Well, there was a study produced by Murtaugh and Schlatz in 2009 that we looked at that quantified the carbon legacy of having an additional child. And I think for a lot of people, it just makes sense that, of course, an additional person on the planet is going to be using up more resources and uh, producing more CO2. But I think I'd like to add to that that the real issue isn't having more children. It's the society that those children are born into, the fact that we consume a lot of resources in day-to-day living and produce a lot of greenhouse gases. So one more person will necessarily do that, but we shouldn't maybe be focusing on family size so much as we should be focusing at fixing some other parts of society. So is the idea behind the one less child, is that more of a a headline grabber that people used as opposed to focusing on the issues that you feel are maybe more important than that? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair summary. It's definitely controversial. Well, it gets, people, it, gets people's, we, it gets people's interests up when you talk about having less children, and we're going to be speaking later in the hour with Population Matters in the UK, and they've been talking about having less children for years okay. uh, in order to create a sustainable planet. But let's talk about some of the things that, uh, that concern you, then we'll get back to the, how many children you might want to have in a, in a minute. But one of the concerns that you have is uh, Canadian high school textbooks, which are, if I understand you correctly, according to your study, somewhat behind the times. Yeah, that might be right. And I mean, some of them were written five or ten years ago now by the time these results have come out, right? And so that that might be part of it. But another is just that they focus on incremental actions. There's still this idea that um, climate change can be solved easily and solved through actions like recycling. And while recycling is a great thing to do. We've delayed action so long on carbon pollution that um, it's just not quite enough to tackle the issue at this point. That's what we hear most regularly. You know, just bring your own grocery bag to the store and you're doing your bit. And uh, and as you say, that uh, according to your study, and, and clearly that's, again, climate change is a controversial issue for Many people, for others it isn't. But that clearly, if you, even if, whatever your stance is, grocery bags isn't going to be the answer. Yeah, and the, and the word, look, at the planet, we, we are making a mess of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think regardless of your feelings of climate change, 
some of the actions that we suggest are just good choices to make for the planet regardless. So eating a plant-based diet, a hundred times more effective than switching to that canvas bag for the grocery store. Um, and on top of that, good for your health, saves land and other resources so that we're not destroying as many species so that we have more space to make crops, to feed more people. We've got a growing population and if we want to be able to feed it in the future, we can't all be consuming meat at the same rate that we are in Western societies, barring some real unforeseen um, progress. It'd be a lot easier to tackle that issue in addition to climate change, um, in addition to other pollutants, just by eating less meat. Less meat or no meat? Good question. Um, so we're talking to our textbooks are looking at adolescents, right? Mm -hmm. As I said, they're a group that really cares about the future and is maybe willing and able mm -hmm. to make more changes. Mm -hmm. Now, someone who's a little bit older and who's been used to the same lifestyle their whole life might not be ready for that. For them, if they're looking to make next steps, maybe going from recycling to cutting down meat to wasting less food, there's a lot of options that they can do. But if you're really wanting to contribute, then eating a plant-based diet is one of the best ways to go about it. And that's how we framed our study is what are the best things, not what are um, the easiest things. Now, you're also looking at uh, no personal cars, as I understand it. So are we talking, first of all, is that correct? And then secondly, if it is, are we talking about the internal combustion engine or electric cars or any cars? Well, again, there's a sort of a hierarchy and how far that you can go. Certainly, no cars is the best thing for the environment. Every type of vehicle is going to require parking spaces where you're going to leave them. They're going to require larger highways that take up more room. So, and they're going to, even if they're electric vehicles, they're going to make some pollution. You still have to mine the steel to get that um, large frame, right? But some cars are better than others. And if you're living in a place Maybe you're in Toronto, for instance, and just can't get by without one. Then looking at a more efficient vehicle is a great step. So stepping up to a hybrid or even an electric vehicle, that reduces a lot of emissions. All right. You're also saying take one less transatlantic flight per year. I don't know how many transatlantic flights people take on average. But what makes your study different then from the information that we've had essentially all along? or the advice we've been given for the past few years anyway? Yeah, I think a lot of the other studies that we looked at before us were focusing, framing things in a different way. They were saying, what are the easiest things for people to adopt? What are the most important household actions that people can adopt? So our study brought all of the actions together and said, these ones are the most important. We didn't leave anything out, even if it's something like family size, where... It is controversial, and, you know, we had hesitation there because um, we don't want to be seen as telling people what to do. These are deeply personal decisions, yeah. uh, but at the same time, they're part of our results, and so we wanted to share them. And, of course, the I other would... part of our study was just looking at textbooks and government recommendations and saying, do they line up? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Seth Wines is with us from the University of British Columbia, and uh, he is a PhD candidate at the school and a researcher on this issue of how to uh, save the planet from climate change, what we can do individually to improve the situation, and it's, it's quite fascinating. We'll take your calls at 800-263-2428, whether or not you agree with the climate change. We are making a mess of things. I was at the park with the dogs uh, the other night, and it was junk everywhere. That was junk everywhere. I know this isn't what you got at, Seth, but there were pop cans and beer cans and cigarette butts and the garbage cans that were meant for these items were like 10 feet away and people didn't bother to use them. That's the kind of thing that drives me mad. But let me just get at this issue of, uh, of having uh, less children, then we'll take some calls. Can you take a couple of calls? Yeah. Okay. All right. Here's the um, here's the uh, the information. I'm looking at the province newspaper here. The biggest and perhaps most controversial of the study's suggestions is having fewer children. 
The data that backs up the assertion is wildly complicated. To figure out the footprint of having one child, the calculation looks at the emissions of that child and all their descendants will create in their lifetime if average emission rates stay at current levels. So a mother is considered responsible for half of her child's emissions. The father takes the other half. She's also responsible for a quarter of her grandchildren's emissions, an eighth of her great-grandchildren's emissions, and so on. The total is divided by the average lifespan to get an annual emission output. So if a person lives for 80 years, the total output of their share of dependents gets divided by 80. You get a bit of a glaze over your eyes when you read that. In, in real terms, in everyday speak, explain it to us. Well, all of the approaches that we looked at, we favored a life cycle assessment approach. And so what that means is if we're looking at the effect of driving a vehicle, we're not just accounting for how much fuel it burns while you're driving it. We're also accounting for um, the energy needed to mine the materials to make that car in the first place, the energy in the factory that made it. And the other thing that we do is we will account for the effect of recycling the materials at the end of the life cycle. So this is calculated into the car's life cycle. It's part of the life cycle of the vehicle. Yeah, and then okay. we divide it out by the number of kilometers and the number of years okay, of passengers in the car. Okay, and I get so it. So this study is similar in that it asks not just what is the effect of having one child and what emissions will that child produce, yeah. but the next idea is well, that child is also likely to have children. And so it tries to account for that as well. And it does it by um, sort of percent relatedness okay. through generations as they go on. All right, I understand yeah. that. Let's talk to Bill in Whitby. He has a question for Seth Wines from UBC. Bill, go ahead, please. You know, first of all, I'm over 50. Most of the people I know are over 35. Half the people I know over 35 don't even have children. I'm never planning on having children. And those who do have children probably have one. So that argument is, basically we'll have no children. My biggest argument is the one that's never talked about, which was talked about decades ago when the new, the new world was going to happen. Why is there never talk about, one, condensed work weeks, two, telecommuting where people can work at least part of their week at home. I go on the GO train and look at the 401, and I look at those people going, half those people could at least work two days a week at home. Or work their day a four work week work week or a three-day work week. Why are we not considering those things? Seth, was that part of your study at all, or how does that fit into the overall? So if I understand, the idea is that we can reduce the number of work days to reduce commuting and the emissions associated with that. Am I right? I think so. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, that could be a very great idea. I think a lot of different policies could come from a national level or an institutional level, like from workplaces, that would reduce emissions. Usually an individual doesn't have control over those things. Say, I am choosing two days to work a week, and because we're focusing on individual actions, it sort of falls outside of the scope of our paper. But um, that being said, we also talk about, um, in many of our interviews, the things that individuals can do in the workplace. And if that's an option, if telecommuting is an option, if um, spending, you know, having a slightly larger number of hours one day so that you can take a day off Mm -hmm. is a solution, then that seems very reasonable as a way to reduce emissions. Okay. Seth, uh, that's our time, but I thank you very much for joining us. It has people thinking. It has people talking. And ultimately, that's a good thing. Great. Love being on the show. All the best. Seth Wines from UBC. Listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We thank uh, Seth Wines from uh, the University of British Columbia who joined us on the study that he and a co author conducted on how to combat climate change. And one of the more controversial aspects of it is uh, have one less child, but that wasn't the focus of their study, as you heard him say. It's also about eating less meat, driving, um, maybe not driving a car, taking one less transatlantic flight per year, and generally taking care of the planet. Now, as you know, I'm a climate change skeptic, but that doesn't mean I don't think our planet needs taken care of, and I think sometimes we do a 
an absolutely lousy job of it. All you have to do is look around at uh, all the cigarette butts that are on the streets, and that'll give you an idea of how careful some people are. Now, there's an organization called Population Matters. It's a new name for the organization, British organization, which has for years lobbied globally that families should have fewer children so the rest of us can enjoy better living standards in a heavy or healthy environment. Population Matters, I'll just read from their website, is a membership charity that addresses population size and environmental sustainability. We believe population growth contributes to the environmental degradation, resource depletion, and other problems. We conduct research, inform the public, and advocate improved family planning and sex education, women's empowerment, smaller families, and moderate consumption. With us is Robin Maynard. He joins us from the UK. He's the director of Population Matters. Mr. Maynard, thank you for the time. Not at all. Thank you, Roy, for asking me on. Ah, It's great to have you with us. Uh, The last guest, their study was just somewhat about having fewer children. Your um, raison d'etre is really to advise people to have fewer children in order to create a more sustainable future for the planet. So fundamentally, what's the most? What's your most fundamental message, and, and, and how can people most rationally approach what you're suggesting? Well, that, thank you for asking that. I mean, to be honest with you, it's just as we're having now, it's having a conversation about population, because it's, it's been a bit of a subject which nobody's really wanted to talk about for the past couple of decades. And particularly my sort of colleagues over here in the UK who work on green issues and environmental issues, they keep saying, Robin, it's just about consumption. People have got to consume less. Don't talk about population. And yes, we do have to think about how much we consume for sure. But actually, we're not consuming less. We're just consuming more and more, even though the technology makes things lighter and smaller and better. We want more of the stuff. So unless we start thinking about the numbers of us as consumers as well, I don't think we've got much chance of really taking the pressure off the planet. And you're dead right, Roy, in in terms of saying, you know, I hear what you say about climate skepticism, but I think you said, you know, you're aware of other issues which are affecting our planet. Definitely. We share it with, you know, and we're really we're really causing a lot of problem for all the other wild animals on on Earth, let alone future human beings. There's uh, there's far fewer wild animals out there than there used to be. 10,000 years ago, I'll give you this fact quickly before you, you, you put me on the spot again, 99% of all land mammals were wild, only 1% were human. Today it's the reverse. 99% of everything on earth with a backbone on land are humans, our cattle, pigs and poultry and our pets. Less than 1.5% is wild. So we're really having impact on our natural world and that will help hurt us in the end as well. One of the things that we do is we don't use these technological items to the end of their natural life. We, for example, buy a smartphone and yeah. use it for a year or until the next generation of smartphones arrives, yeah. and then suddenly the one that was perfect yesterday is yeah. obsolete tomorrow. Too right. And there's, um, there's a really interesting study um, done in the States recently by uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they were trying to work out that same thing. How come everything is getting so much more efficient? I mean, you know, I'm nearly 60, and when I started out using mobile phones, they were about the size of a brick, you know, and they weighed a ton, and now they're like a biscuit, you know, they're tiny. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you say, people want more of them. We're not using less stuff, we're using more. And that's just, I think, human nature, but we have to try and reduce our impact on the planet, and particularly things like plastic getting in the oceans. But we also have to think about how many of us are on the planet and, and the impact we're having. And that's not about talking about control or doing something mad like a sort of one-child policy in China, forcing women not to have children. It's just starting the conversation and saying, rather than having three kids, why not have two? Because that one less child will have such a disproportionately positive impact on taking the pressure off the planet. And that'll be better for your kids and their kids in the future as well. When, so, you, when you make that argument, yeah. how openly and willingly is it received? And how often do you run into what? Yeah, <laughs> quite, quite, <laughs> quite often. Yeah. That's quite true. And uh, I think there's something, it's, it's a funny one. It's sort of like we can talk about everything else on Earth but we find it very hard to talk about ourselves as a species. You know, we can count all the elephants that are left and the fish in the sea and acres of 
of uh, tropical forest or the beautiful forest you have in Canada. But when it comes to talking about human numbers, people start putting a zip across their mouth and stuffing cotton wool in their ears and, and moving away from you. You know, they, there's something about it psychologically which people found very difficult. And that's one of the things we have to try and overcome. So it's absolutely brilliant to be on a program like yours and just having a sensible, rational conversation. Because I can promise you, I've talked to friends of mine and colleagues who've been in the, in the environment movement who get quite cross when you start talking about populism. They say, oh, you're being anti-human or you're being racist. I, say, I promise you, I'm not. I'm just talking about the fact, you know, we've got 7.6 billion people on the planet at the moment. We're using up more resources than the Earth can provide for us. And the projections by the, the most conservative scientists are that we're going to hit 11 billion by the middle of this century, maybe even 16 billion. Do you think on a finite planet, and the only one that I can see in the sky which has got any life in it, out in the universe, we can really do that? Or would it be better if we just started thinking about how we can not control but manage our population yeah. for the benefit of future generations? Well, we're not talking about Soylent Green, are we? <laughs> Great film, long time ago. That shows your age. Long time. And it does, doesn't it? I remember going to see that. And when you were, for those who haven't seen it, those who are too young to know what Soylent Green is. Charlton Heston, was it? Yeah. Heston? Yeah. It was yeah. a film where it, once you reached 30, you were killed off. Well, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm well over the hill for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> and then, so, no, I promise you. And, and the great should we, should we tell everyone, should we tell everyone, Robin, what, uh, what, what happened with the, the remains, or should we leave that alone? I, I, it's up to you, Roy. It's your program. Let's leave it alone. It, it's a biscuit you might live, leave in the, yeah, the larder. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it, look it up. That'll be good yeah. enough. But yeah. do you find that people are receptive, generally, or not? Well, we just, funny enough, it's really interesting you ask, because we just did a big event up in, in London. Some of, of your listeners may have heard of the Natural History Museum. It's, um, it's a wonderful museum, and you'll have the equivalent in, in Canada, but it's one of those sort of early Victorian museums. It's a beautiful um, exhibit, sadly most of them dead, well, all of them dead. Um, they've just moved a skeleton of, of a blue whale from one of their outer halls to the main hall, and it's absolutely amazing but they're not really talking about the impacts of humanity on all the other species on Earth. So we created this little figure, a new human being called Homo magnopaditis, and, and that's my schoolboy Latin for Bigfoot. And he's a metal figure made out of thousands of little blanks of human beings, and he's life-size, but his feet are bigger than normal. And on his feet, he's standing on the Earth, and he's squashing and squeezing it, and he's got lots of animals that he's trodden on. He's thinking, what have we done here? I didn't realize I was doing this. And we, we put this outside the museum as people queuing up to see the great whale scale, skeleton. And so many people came up and said, this is interesting. What, th what's this about? And it really engaged the conversation. And it wasn't negative. It was about engaging people to think about the future and think about their kids' future. So I think that's what we have to do. We have to, we have to reach out to people, you know, not be like, some sort of figure outside the city walls shouting through a megaphone saying, oh, it's all doom and gloom. There is, there is real hope. There is real optimism. Um, but it, re it, it requires us to do something. So I'll give you an example. So Bangladesh, 30 years ago, their fertility rate for their average per woman was seven children. Over 30 years, they've got that down to 2.2 uh, per woman on average. And more girls are going to school, they're going to university, they're getting educated, they, their, their economy is improving because they've got more people in the workforce with those high, that higher education. But it took 30 years of really positive work, not forced contraception or forced anything, but actually positive engagement. So it shows you can do it, but it shows you have to put quite a big effort into it. So we haven't got an enormous amount of time ahead of us if you look at some of those future projections, but we probably just about got enough time. So if we can start the conversation like you and I are having, we have a chance. Well, it's a good conversation. Now, I, we have about 90 seconds, and I, I just want to go back to something that I read in the opening paragraph about Population Matters, and everybody can go and check it out, populationmatters.org, uh, where you write, we conduct research, inform the public, and advocate improved family planning and sex education, and then women's empowerment. When I see women's empowerment, am I understanding correctly, if I were to suggest that that to me suggests that it's men who want the larger families and maybe not so much women. Am I reading that correctly or incorrectly? That, that, that can be the case. And certainly in some of the developing countries, they're still quite patriarchal societies. And so they're about 
few hundred million women plus around the world who don't have access to the family planning they want to to have make choices about their own family size. So that that is very true. If you can enable uh, women to um, gain access to family planning, to healthcare, to education, then they can start making individual and shared fair choices about the size of their family. And there's, there's some pretty grim statistics of about, you know, there's a thousand women who die every day avoidably in childbirth, and 400 of those women you know, didn't want the pregnancy that killed them. So there's some really humane, positive things we can do, which is, and it is dealing with cultural barriers as well as simple access to um, family planning methods and, and education. So there are some challenges, but we have challenges in the UK too. We have a very high teenage pregnancy rate and we try and do work with, with at-risk girls in this country as well. So it's not just about pointing the finger okay. at poor developing countries. The rich countries really need to do stuff too. Robin, thank you so much for the time. Right, we'll talk again. Many thanks, Roy. Many thanks. Bye-bye. Populationmatters.org is the website, populationmatters.org. My number is 1-800-263-2428. All right, so sensible, you can call it climate change if you want, are just sensible policies so, so that we, we have an appropriate stewardship of what's around us and we take care of what's around us. You don't, I mean, you can challenge the climate change argument, but you still have a responsibility to look around you and make sure that the your space around you is, is looked after. So sensible, yeah, let's call it climate assists. What are they? Do we need better family planning and sex education? Fewer children, 800-263-2428. You know what you want to say about this, and we'll come back and we'll take your calls and we'll find out on The Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I don't look at this as profiting. This is not a time for profit or for gaining or for uh, thinking, oh, I did it or I hit the jackpot or whatever. This is, this is, I think, a time for remembering. It's a time of reconciliation. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects all Canadians, every one of us, even when it is uncomfortable. Well, there in... Uh I was going to say descending order of importance, but anyway, there's Omar Cotter and uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Trudeau making the case for the charter being responsible for the $10.5 million payout to Omar Cotter. And it's been the issue for this country over the last week and a half, two weeks. And I just sensed that this is, and I wondered about it as recently as yesterday for a little while. But I do get the sense that this one's not going to go away. It is not going to disappear. It will not become a situation that becomes a comfortable one to forget for the liberals, or particularly for Mr. Trudeau, who suggested in the United States that, oh, well, we had to give him the $10.5 million. It wasn't the charter anymore. Now it was financial rationale. We had to give him the $10.5 million because if we didn't do that, it would go to the courts, and that would probably, by the end, it would cost us 30 to $40 million. How do you, I, I said this yesterday. How do you know that? This was about getting Cotter, hopefully, off the front pages. And all it's done is created Omar Cotter's story as a national and international headline. Now, I, um, I was reading Daniel Pipes' history of the uh, Cotter family. Daniel Pipes is the president of the Middle East Forum. He publishes the Middle East Quarterly Journal. He's an American author, historian, and commentator. And I've thought on a number of occasions of inviting Mr. Pipes, uh, Dr. Pipes, on the show. And we did it for today, and he's been uh, kind enough to agree to come on. Dr. Pipes, thank you very much for the time. And what was it that initially caught your interest about the Cotter family? Well, thank you for the invitation. I first wrote about the Cotters in March 2004 when I was astonished by this family father, mother, four sons, two daughters, almost all of whom, except for one son and one daughter, were deeply involved with al-Qaeda, with jihadi violence, with hating the West. And uh, after that, I, I started a blog, which I, <clears throat> I, I added up, and it's some 16,000 words now over these 13 years, basically just 
adding the news items as they as they arose over the years. And it's it's in anticipation of this call, I looked it over, and it's astonishing how many things they've gone into, how many legal cases, how many depositions, how many international issues, how many uh, celebrations by the media, how many discussions by the politicians, uh, culminating, I think, in the last couple of weeks, this latest development. But this is certainly just part of a much larger phenomenon going back to the 1980s. This, this just didn't begin recently. This started with the, the father's involvement with Islamist causes that the Canadian taxpayer paid for back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, when I started looking at what you had written, the chronology that you put together, and you can find it, folks, at danielpipes.org, danielpipes.org, it's 26 pages, and it's one item after another, after another, after another, and each and every one of them is relevant. They might deal with one of the Carter family, might deal with two, might deal, as you said, with an event that the family was responsible for creating or found themselves somehow wrapped up in, but it's 26 pages. And as this is all unfolding, the media in this country and political parties, particularly the Liberal Party and the New Democrats, those on the center-left and left, seem to be doing everything they could to minimize any negative um, reporting or any negative opinion um, dissolution. No, that's not the word I'm looking for. Any negative opinion offering from from anyone. They, they would just they just try to keep everything in a, in a, in a neat tidy box with this family, and you can't. No, you can't. Uh, I think symbolic of that was November 2015 cover story in McLean's that showed Omahada with a couple of others in a rather glamorous portrayal. Uh, I, as, as I see it from the outside as an American, this is a case of the judiciary and the mainstream media together changing the narrative about the Khadas from what I've called Canada's, Canada's first family of of terrorism to a family of victims who have been badly treated by the U.S., the Canadian, the Pakistani, the Afghan, and other governments. Poor people, uh, they deserve our sympathy and indeed our money. Have you developed any theories as to why it became important to clear the Carter name? by those who insisted on on doing it for years in this country. Why? Well, this fits into a larger pattern where the left apologizes for the Islamist aggression, the jihadi fighting against us, and says, really, it's our fault. We have misbehaved, whether it be in Afghanistan or anywhere else. We, the West, are evil, and the Islamists are simply responding to our evil. So let's be nice to them. Let's pay them off. Let's feel guilty. Let's uh, you know, feel remorse for our actions and try to do better in the future. Mr. Kretschian, on the anniversary of 9-11, and I remember that very clearly because we did a network broadcast from New York City. We went to New York City and we rented studio space at WOR. And uh, Mr. Kretschian, on the anniversary of 9-11, and I'm paraphrasing loosely, almost seemed to suggest that it really was the largesse of the Western countries, the, the success of Western nations and the unwillingness to share their success that should be looked at as the potential rationale behind 9-11 and other terrorist activities. Now, like I said, I'm, I'm very loosely paraphrasing what the former prime minister said, and I read that just again just a couple of weeks ago, and that's even disturbing now you know, 16 years later, it's disturbing to read that. Yes, certainly Kretschmer was part of that attitude. The fact that he went to Pakistan and managed to get the father of Omar Khadr released uh, was astonishing. Here is someone who is virulently anti-Canadian, anti-Western, who had engaged in crimes, who was participant in al-Qaeda, and the Canadian prime minister goes out of his way to pressure the Pakistanis to let him go, which they did. Uh, yeah, it goes back to the sense of guilt that we in the West have acted badly. We have exploited other peoples. 
We are rich at their expense. We have rights at their expense. And don't be surprised and don't blame them if they act against us, whether it be 9-11 on a large scale or Omar Khadr's attacking and killing one American soldier and blinding another one. How has the last week and a half to two weeks in Canada gone over in the United States? What's been the reaction been to the fact that Cotter was, uh, was, was, was delivered this $10.5 million, and uh, then earlier this week, an Ontario court said that that money could not be frozen, so that uh, Christopher Spears' widow Tabitha and uh, Lane Morris, the American sergeant who lost an eye in the grenade uh, that uh, to the grain that grenade that Omar Cotter threw, uh, Lane Morris was on the air with us yesterday. What's the reaction in the United States been to this? Although this is in good part an American story, with Americans killed and wounded, with uh, Omar Khadr spending something like a decade in Guantanamo, uh, many court cases involving him, still it has quite disappeared from the American media and the American consciousness. Uh, insofar as Americans are following this, they're outraged, but that's not a lot of people. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The good thing about this apology for me is that it's going to restore a little bit of, of my, my reputation here in Canada. It's, and maybe that would give people an opportunity, you know, to give me a chance and to think there might be more than what is just said in the media. Omar Cotter, just a couple of days ago, I was reading from uh, Professor Daniel Pipes' chronology of the Cotters in Canada about Abdullah Cotter in 2004. He was uh, doing an interview with the CBC, and he was asked about training camps for terrorists. And uh, he admitted that, I'm reading here now from Dr. Pipe's chronology, he admitted that as a teenager he attended the Calden camp in Afghanistan, which intelligence officials allege was linked to al-Qaeda. And he says, quote, anyone who wants to get trained can get trained in Afghanistan. If you want to fire a Kalashnikov, it's like in Canada Learning hockey, anybody can do it. A 10-year-old boy can fire a Kalashnikov in Afghanistan, so it's no big deal. When asked about 9-11 in the CBC interview, Carter replied that he felt sorry for those who were killed, but admiration for the hijackers. Quote, it was very wild to see a person seeing a building in front of him, and he's going 900 kilometers per hour straight into the building. That was very hard to believe. If you believe in something very hard, you can do that, he said. So you felt admiration for the people who did this, the CBC reporter asked him. Yes, said Cotter, because they did some things that stunned the entire world. And Cotter said everybody for an entire, like, months was only talking about that. That that shakes you up a little bit, uh, Dr. Pipes, when you read that. It certainly does. Uh, There was one Frenchman who was in Afghanistan. He said he never met anyone as deeply hostile to the West as the father the patriarch of the Khadr crew. And uh, almost all of them, there are a couple of exceptions, have followed in his, foot, in his footsteps. They're uh, virulently anti-Canadian, anti-Western in their speech and in their actions. Was there a specific, was there one or two or three dates, moments in the family's history that particularly stand out to you? That is quite a challenge. They have such a long history of malfeasance. One thing that struck me was that back in September 2004, uh, I had a private communication from the landlady of the Khadr family, and it, it, it showed them in a different light. Not only are they so hostile on political level, but on a private level, renting in an apartment, they were obnoxious, uh, they didn't pay their money, they left the place in absolute, um, in terrible shape, dirty, broken, so uh, what you see here is a disdain for Canada, for Canadians, that goes beyond the abstraction of 9-11 and down to their own way of life. Another thing that struck me is that they're, they're just all the time in the news, um, one of the hotter girls married the son of a prominent tax lawyer and judge. And to make a long story short, his house was attacked as a result of this, with the, this the Boyle House. Um, it just goes on and on. One, wherever they go, whatever they do, it's trouble, it's antipathy, it's hatred, it's anti-Western ideals, it's jihadi uh, motivations. 
November 2015, you wrote that about Omar Cotter, uh, featured sympathetically on the cover of Maclean's, quote, Canada's National Magazine, along with a victim of Islamic violence, uh, and um, if I, if I, uh, actually, you know, it's not you who said this, but you did write at the end, and I'm trying to put these pieces of paper together here, they've managed to transform a pathological murderer into a victim, providing al-Qaeda with a great PR victory. Has this all been uh, exactly that? How, how is the how is the terrorist movement internationally interpreting what's gone on in Canada, particularly over the last two weeks? Or is that is that a redundant question? <laughs> the, the Islamist movement has two wings: the violent wing, the jihadi wing, the terrorist wing, on the one hand and the nonviolent political wing, on the other hand. As time goes on, it appears increasingly that the violent wing is not achieving much. Yes, it can kill people. It can destroy property. But in the end, it creates a revulsion, a horror, a fear that is not beneficial to the Islamist movement, to the movement that seeks to apply Islamic law on everybody. It is the nonviolent wing the one that works through the political institutions, educational, media, philanthropic, legal, that does much better. And so I think over time what we see is the nonviolent is becoming more effective and more dominant and the violent one less so. Now, that's not to say the violent activities aren't still happening. That's not what's really moving the Islamist movement. That's not what's helping this movement move forward. Should we uh, be concerned about Omar Khadr showing up again in his former, I don't want to say role, but in his former reality? He talks about a little bit of his reputation being restored by the apology by Prime Minister Trudeau, and I muse that if, uh, if his reputation is restored, that's something we should all be terrified of. But uh, should, we ever, should we be concerned about Omar Khadr? From a violent point of view, I doubt it. I'd be very surprised if he engaged in more violence. Concerned from a political Islamist point of view, yes, indeed. He has an extraordinary platform. He is a newsworthy person. He has the ability to say things and do things which will influence, which will reach a significant audience. And that's my worry, that he now is someone with a good reputation, who has been, someone who's been who the state of Canada says it has damaged and paid restitution for. And he now will be someone who has prestige. Can you see him running for public office in this country? I certainly can, yes. Yeah, let a few years go by. Yeah, it's possible. Dr. Pipes, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for the invitation. Good to talk to you. Call to you again, Dr. Daniel Pipes. And it's danielpipes.org. The Middle East Forum. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A national journalist has become a friend over the last six weeks. She and her husband, Bob, have become friends. We, I think I spend more time talking to them and emailing them than anybody else. Don Ray Downton, a national freelance journalist, has written uh, some wonderful personal experiences about living with chronic pain. And uh, her husband, as I said, Bob, who um, was on the show with Don Ray a couple of weeks ago, as they talked about her suicide plan that she has in place if her meds are withheld. Now, I was really worried about you, Don Ray, this last week, because you went to see your doctor and you had some concerns, and, and those concerns aren't necessarily done away with, but they're alleviated somewhat. Hi, Roy. Hi. Yes. Um, I've had a three-month reprieve. I thought that I might find on going back to my pain clinic, which I do every three months, uh, that my doctor might confirm that he was retiring. I thought he was trying to give me that message when I last saw him. It turns out that he's not retiring, uh, so I have uh, another prescription that will last me for three months, and I'm to go back and see him in three months. What I don't know is whether or not he will still have his prescribing privileges in three months, because there are doctors across the country being investigated by their colleges now, and the trick seems to be that 
they don't lose their licenses, but they do lose their privilege to prescribe opioids, to prescribe benzodiazepines, you know, Valium-like drugs, uh, to prescribe sleeping pills, and to prescribe stimulants like uh, Ritalin or Adderall. Um, So doctors are losing their prescribing privileges in some cases, and I don't know whether or not, I don't know how long I will be safe. And without my Without my meds, I'm in Hillary Morden's position. I cannot go back to the pain that I was in before I started using fentanyl under medical supervision. So if I have to go back there, I will have to kill myself. But I think she's given me a really good idea. I will let the college know that they will be facing a lawsuit over my wrongful death. I think everybody should do that. I think everybody should do that, absolutely. I think we just need to turn this um, idiotic situation that people have been put in because... uh, Colleges uh, like to have the power that they have over doctors and over the patients, and they don't have the expertise that they need to go with uh, good execution of that power. I know one thing. They don't like these conversations I'm having. Apparently not. I think that's great. I think we should have more of them. Well, uh, certainly not going to let go. Uh, We won't do it every weekend, but we certainly will not let go of the issue because there are too many people involved. Uh, Several million in this country have chronic pain. Just statistically, we know that. And in the United States, uh, if it's 20% of the population, and the population is 300 million, do they, do the, people can easily do the math. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll be talking to an American in a few minutes who contacted me, and she was just absolutely terrified of what's going on with her. Nobody would help her. I was able to get her some, at least hopefully some help in a matter of minutes. But uh, that's just because I've learned a lot over the last number of weeks. Now, you also created for the professor, Professor uh, Jason Busse at McMaster University, who was the editor of the guide for opioids for non-cancer pain in this country, you created a marvelous series of questions for him. Share some of them with us, please. Sure. I I was tipped off about uh, a so-called webinar that had appeared online um, on YouTube on July 5th. I was tipped off about it about a week ago. And I I sat there for an hour and a few minutes, however long it was, and I watched it. And, you know, as Alice in Wonderland Wonderland said, it just got curiouser and curiouser for me. There were just problems with it. Um, I didn't know what it was what it was, why it was there, uh, that was never established from the outset. I've talked to a number of pain physicians and asked them, were they told that it was going to be on, were they invited to send questions? Nobody knew it was going to be on, so I wonder why it was that the Department of Health gave uh, Professor Busa more money to do this webinar, apparently they did, Uh, if nobody was told about it, no one was properly invited. That was one of the first things that was wrong with it for me, but other things became apparent. I knew that Dr. Busa was a, a, a chiropractor. He's not an MD. He can't prescribe even an aspirin. I think that as pain patients, we want the rules about our treatment to be made by somebody who has expertise in what he's talking about. I noticed that Dr. Busa, for example, said twice during the webinar, he was talking about a type of pain receptor called a nociceptor, but he called it a nocioceptor. Um, you know, I, I just I don't think that we... I think we want more expertise about the guideline than is currently on it. So the kinds of questions that I asked were questions about the funding. Where did the money come from and why? Whose idea was it? Why did we need a new guideline? We had a perfectly good guideline, and I can attest to that because my my care was carried out under the old guideline. I asked them about conflicts of interest, which, which really interests me in projects like this. Busa had said, he said before, in the guideline itself and also in the webinar, that there were, for example, no intellectual biases present in the committees. The steering committee itself was made up of only four people. Four people had exacting control over over the preparation and implementation of the guideline. Two of them are well-known as as outspoken um, anti-opioid activists. there wasn't even a pain patient, or rather a pain physician, on the voting committee. The people who decided what guidelines would say and how impactful they would become, there was only one of those people who was a, a, a pain physician. I'm sorry, not, not, not on the voting panel. There wasn't even a pain physician. There, was, there were pain physicians on the, uh, the panel who was uh, supposed to be expertly guiding the, the central panel. My, my question would be, why didn't they make the experts the central panel? Uh, panel, but they did not. Um, I also had, I asked him, I asked Dr. Busu, was he concerned about um, the fact that the guidelines were a violation of international treaties, 
of the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which we have as Canadians, a violation of the Canada Health Act, of two Supreme Court rulings, and interesting, interestingly enough, the guideline counters provisions of Health Canada itself. So what, do we, what takes precedence? Is it the guideline or is it what Health Canada says is good for pain patients? I asked him in particular, did he have any concern about being the recipient of wrongful death lawsuits? And I asked him if he conceived of the webinar as damage control, because to me it seemed that the webinar was entirely about backing off from what the guidelines actually prescribe. He was softening everything. It, to me, it was entirely an effort at damage control. I did not hear back from Dr. Busa. It's been a week now, and I have not heard back from Well, him. you deserve an answer to these particular questions. They are great questions. The, the, every Canadian should know the answers to these questions. In fact, Dr. Busa, when he was on my program, uh, I asked him, I challenged him on a couple of things. Uh, specifically, the, uh, there was the one about uh, the numbers of Ontario patients who've been accessing publicly funded opioid, um, not clinics, but assistance programs, I'll, I'll say. And the numbers went from sky high between 2004 and 2014, I think it was. Anyway, a significant increase. And I asked him, are these all chronic pain patients or are there numbers of what I call generic addicts involved? He hadn't, didn't have the answer to it didn't have the answer. Then later on in the guidelines, they talked about this multidisciplinary approach for dealing with uh, chronic pain patients. They get a, a kinesiologist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, a nurse practitioner, a family doctor, of course, and, and others. It was a team of about 10 or 11 individuals. And I said, where in Canada is it possible? This is a country where 4 million people don't even have a family doctor. Where in Canada could you put together such a team? Well, you can't. Exactly. Uh, that was one of the questions that I asked them. Re recommendation 10 in the guideline is a strong recommendation that we have um, multidisciplinary uh, pain treatment in this country. I think everybody would agree that we should, but to put it in a guideline as if it's real and we can all access it is kind of like saying every Canadian should have uh, a Maserati. Please provide one. So I, I suggested to, to Dr. Busse in my email to him with my list of 38 questions that recommendation number 10 about multidisciplinary pain control, which we didn't have and we probably would not have for a very long time, the recommendation was illogical. I wanted to know why he, why he recommended it. it. It puts us all in an impossible place. This is a much more important aspect of the story than the one that's being carried by media everywhere, and that, that's in Appalachia in the United States. Uh, a, a county district or a county attorney, district attorney, is suing drug manufacturers over um, the opioids. The Appalachian counties are broke. And, and my way of thinking is this is a way to get an out-of-court settlement and put some money into the counties. But that's being carried as though it's a major story. The major story is that people cannot survive with what they're being faced with and being threatened with, and in fact, is happening to them. And I'm going to be talking to, and this isn't just Canada, it, Canada is our main focus, but it's also in the United States, and much of what we're doing is based on what came out of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States. Don Ray, you're, you're holding their feet to the fire. Oh, I'm trying to. I'm you trying are. To. I think in the last two weeks what's distressed me more than anything um, is the fact that Dr. Busa will not um, come out from behind his, the screen that he's erected uh, around himself, not for doctors who challenge him. Doctors have been asking him to, that since he's let loose this monster, get it back in the bottle. He hasn't responded. He hasn't responded to me. I, I, have, I have developed a great empathy for doctors over the past two weeks, Roy, just from what I've found out. Um, I think that our pain doctors in particular have been put in an awful position. They know they the are. suffering that we go yeah. through, and they are unable to help yeah. us. And I'm, re I'm hearing from some doctors, I've heard it from more than one, that uh, pain doctors are noticing that more of their patients, chronic pain patients, are taking their own lives. Yes, and now, I had that confirmed with pain physicians that I spoke well, with. We've both heard it. Weeks. They, they are uh, seeing more and more patient deaths. More so we've, we've both heard this. So yeah. This is the story that the media needs to concentrate on, not some county district attorney in in Appalachia, la launching a lawsuit against the drug companies because it's just about supporting a, a broke county. That's what it's about. Don Ray, uh, obviously we're going to keep talking. We'll keep this issue going. And I think that before it's over, and in due, well, I shouldn't say due course, soon, 
soon, I think this is going to be the story for this country. I, it, I, it, it can't go any other way. I hope so, Roy, okay. and I hope it has a good conclusion for all of us. I hope so. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. All the best. Don Ray Downton on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We're back after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Colleagues right now with this business, with our college here, there are colleagues who are being forced to stop practice or who are forcing, choosing to stop practicing pain medication management because of the, the, the drawn-out battle with the college. And these patients are going to be left high and dry. There'll be nobody to look after them. I, it's, it's just, it's very, very sad mess. There's uh, Dr. Maria Redmond. She's pain management specialist in Ottawa, talking about the fact that there are doctors in Ottawa, as we understand now across the country, who are just stopping practicing pain management because of pressure from their provincial colleges of physicians and surgeons stopping practicing pain management so the patients don't have anybody to go to. They're losing doctors. Don Ray Downton found out that, as she reported uh, in the last half hour, that other physicians are having their prescribing privileges taken away. Pain doctors. So they can't prescribe opioids. So I guess when the, when the colleges and the governments run out of rationale, they just make the situation worse for the patients. The last 24 hours, I've received several contacts from doctors who want to explain to me just how the situation is. But I gathered from the emails that they want to be critical. Well, that's fine. The Minister of Health wasn't able to answer questions. Maybe you can. I'm talking to the doctors. And I'd like to say to some doctors... If you're worried about your patients, I understand you're worried about your medical licenses. We've, we've heard that. We've heard doctors have said to their patients, I have to worry about losing my license. That's why I have to cut back on your opioids. If you're worried, why don't you fight back? Why don't you fight for your patients? Don't call me with excuses. Fight for your patients. Remember the line, first, do no harm? If you know your patients are in agony and you're cutting back on their medications, we're not talking about street drugs here. We're not talking about wild-eyed people looking for their next fix. Talking about good people, decent people, productive people, parents, grandparents in agony. Because somebody in a lab coat is scaring you. You have an association. You get together to fight governments for pay. Population generally supports you. Why don't you fight for your patients? Some doctors have contacted me and... uh, they, and I read the emails, and it sounds like, hey, Roy, you know, you're right on the mark. Boom. And then they disappear. When I send emails asking them to come on the air, you know, come on the air, let's talk about it. First, at first, they're interested, and then you don't hear anymore. Maybe they've been intimidated. I don't know, but they're not responding. But there are people who are terrified. And then I, I'm just a radio talk show host. I don't have the power to provide help. You do. I know your license means a lot to you. But your license is there so that you can take care of your patients. Isn't it? Isn't that why you're a doctor? Why well, I like I like Dr. Mary Redmond. She is something special. Going to have her back. Anytime Minister Philpot feels she's got answers for my fantastic questions, you're welcome back, Minister. 
I know you people listen to what I say about pain meds because I'm the only media person nationally who's doing this now. Some others are uh, are on it, but these are real people like Jamie. Now, Jamie isn't Canadian. She's in. Uh, she's from the United States, but she contacted me. See, this is this is North America wide. It's 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 global. I had an email from a desperate patient in Sydney, Australia. Please help me. So I con I was contacted by Jamie in uh, in Massachusetts. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Ray. How are you today? Well, I'm fine. How are you? Um, I've had better days, but days not so bad. Thank you. <laughs> so, tell us what uh, what's wrong with your back. I was in um, a pretty bad car accident in 2005. I was 24 at the time, or 23, almost 24. Um, I was hit by a drunk driver, and the accident reconstruction team stated that my car rolled a minimum of eight times. It took me almost eight months to walk again, and I had hematomas so bad across my legs um, that it took almost a year and a half for those themselves to go away. I have 18 compression fractures. I have eight herniated discs. I have six bulging discs. Um, because of the, the compression fractures are pretty much in between my shoulder blades, I now have severe uh, kyphosis, what uh, some people would know as a dowager pump, because my discs have basically uh, collapsed in on themselves. And the, that particular area of my spine is inoperable. The odds of the, of the surgery that they would have to do helping is only about 35 to 40% that it will work or actually make me any better. My lower back, um, I need this fusion surgery. It has been a little over 12 years that I have dealt with this now on top of other medical conditions that I had prior to that, such as endometriosis and fibromyalgia. Um, it has been a long road for me. For the so, first three, no, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. For the first three years after my car accident, um, I went from doctor to doctor to doctor where, you know, they basically said, you know, your tissue and, and stuff is going to take time to heal. You were in a traumatic car accident. Just give it time to heal. Um, some doctors didn't believe me at all. And I remember walking out of my doctor's offices crying, you know, holding hands with my husband and our very young daughter at the time, wondering why nobody would help me. Yeah. Jamie, you know, Jamie, when when they did help you, I don't want to rush you along, but when they did help no, you, no, no. Uh, they provided you with a daily fentanyl prescription, correct? They did, yes. I was, um, but prior to being put on any opioid medication, what they uh, tried all sorts of other I, things. Uh, oh, oh, Lord, yes. Yeah. I, so, so, so when you, when you run the when you run the fentanyl, yes. um, fentanyl yes. patches. Yes. How many years were you on the fentanyl? I was on the fentanyl, same exact dose, for just under 10 years. And it helped? Oh, very much so, yes. It made your life livable? Yes, it made my life livable. I was able to do things that I hadn't been able to do okay. for many years. So now they've taken you way down, and they're going yes. to take you even further down because your family doctor told you that the clinic, who the, the owners of the clinic, have decided how much pain medication each pain patient can have. And that's, that is correct. That is an extremely low level, which is not going to do you any good at all. And it left no. you in absolute desperation. It, it has. I am, I am very, very scared um, what is going to happen when they lower me anymore. And I told my doctor that on Friday. Um, I was advised that they would be lowering me even more or tapering me more. And I had expressed my concerns to him, and I told him, in no uncertain terms, I do not think that my body can tolerate being lowered anymore. What did he say to His you? What's that? What did he say to you? His response to me was, well, it's not your license on the line. 
my response back was, no, it's my life on the line. His response to you is, it's not your license that's on, on the line. That's how he justifies pulling you off, pulling you off your meds. Well, the upside of this is that I got you in touch with uh, Dr. Lynn Webster, who was on this program. You did, and I cannot thank you enough for doing so. Well, it just seemed to me that Dr. Webster is one of those doctors who cares tremendously about his patients. He's the former head of the Pain Physicians Association in the United States. He was yeah, investigated yeah. by the drug inve- the DEA for four years because he takes care of his patients, and then they dropped the investigation because there was nothing to investigate. He's just a good doctor, but he is yeah. now he's now going to he's now given you some names, and he's given you references yeah. or referrals, and hopefully yes. hopefully this will work out for you. He has not only did um, he correspond by email with me to um, give me a list of names. There's probably uh, maybe 30 names on the list. But not only did he do that, he also highlighted the people that he knows personally. And he sent each one of them an email for me um, as sort of like a referral for me, um, trying to find me help. Okay, Jamie. that is amazing to me. So there's the contrast. Your doctor, who says to you, it's not your license on the line. And another doctor, Dr. Webster, who you don't even know until, hadn't had any correspondence with him until today, putting personal referrals through to doctors he knows for you. There's a good doctor, and there, frankly, is a bad doctor. And, and, you know, there's, there is such a lack of doctors like Dr. Webster out there. So many people suffer uh, with doctors that just don't care yeah. or they're you know, more concerned of, about their licensing than they are about their patient's health. And, you know, not only uh, once I started being tapered, not only did, you know, my already existing health problems get really bad, but something else started to happen. My pain levels were so high, yeah. my body could not tolerate it. No, I understand. I, I understand, Jamie. I do. I'm yeah. sorry, my dear. I've got to run, but I, I've got to run, but I'm so glad that we were able to get something started for you anyway. Yes, I can't thank you enough. You know, it's, 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 it's about the patient. I'm glad it's working for you. I'm just, I just want people to understand there are ways to get things done. Thank you, Jamie, and I'm going to stay in touch with you. Thank you, Ryan. You be well. Bye-bye. You, you as well. Thank Thanks. You. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.